It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello and welcome to Accelerate. I couldn't be more honored, actually, to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Dave Sanderson. Dave's an inspirational speaker and the author of a new book called Moments Matter, How One Defining Moment Can Create a Lifetime of Purpose. And we're going to dig into what that moment was. Now, I just want to set the stage and imagine doing something that you've done hundreds of times before. You're in sales, you're on a routine business trip, meeting with prospects and customers, and you're really just looking forward to wrapping up the trip and heading home to your family when suddenly something goes horribly wrong. And that's what happened to my guest today, Dave Sanderson, on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 on January 15th, 2009. And what happened is that plane glided without engine power to a touchdown on the Hudson River. And what happened after it is it came to a stop in the icy water. And what has happened since has changed Dave forever. And he's here to share some of the lessons he learned in the aftermath of this with us. And Dave, welcome to the show. Well, Andy, thank you for having me. Very excited to be here with you today. So we give a little bit of background. But take a minute, introduce yourself. Well, thank you. I um. Like you said, I uh, I was in sales for 30 years uh, as this was going on, and after this happened, and Canley, it was one of those days that uh, it was a it was a normal business. I was at the end of a three day sales trip, starting in and down in Sarasota, Florida, ending up in New York City, and um, doing like most salespeople do. You know, we're you know trying to figure out how we can get home in the most effective way possible because we're <laughs> on the road. So can we get an earlier flight. Yep. Well, that's exactly what happened because that day I was actually working in a distribution center in Brooklyn. And um, distribution centers open up very early. This one opened up at 2 o'clock in the morning. So we started our day at 5, which means we got done at 10. And like most business people, and especially salespeople, usually schedule the last flight out because you just don't know how the day's going to go. Exactly. But uh, when we got done at 10, I called the travel agent and worked with her, and she put me on flight 1549. So I think I was supposed to be on that plane for a reason. So, well, let's let's take a step back first. And so who are you selling for? What were you selling? Yeah, I was uh, responsible for the consumer packaged goods division of Oracle applications in the southeast. So I was working with with a client that was based out of Sarasota, Florida, which had plants all over the country. And so you were just visiting one of the plants where they were using your software. Yeah, we were. No, they weren't using it yet. It was a it was a prospective client. Oh, we prospective client. A, okay. We were doing a distribution system check that day. Uh, we were just uh, we had done the previous day. We done a warehouse and manufacturing plant check down in Virginia, and we uh, the following day we did a distribution center check up in Brooklyn. So we were we were doing what normal salespeople and consulting teams do, going out and analyzing what kind of systems are going to need, and so we can hopefully give them. Uh, an attractive package to make them an offer they can't refuse. So, <laughs> I was going to ask a question: Is, is did, did you ultimately end up getting the order? Ultimately, we did. It wasn't uh, immediately after that, but uh, about uh, about six weeks later, um, that customer actually became one of my best customers. They they um, they went above board. They really took care of me as one of basically one of their own after the plane crash, which was a big lesson for me is, is uh, I made them a raving fan before they became a customer. And so when things happened, I was part of the family. And so making that transaction, it was a matter of just details at that point, because you were a part of the family and they were going to do business with you because they trusted you. Got it. So what, what was running through your mind when it became clear that this plane was going to 
touchdown somewhere other than its intended destination, in this case, on the Hudson River in the middle of winter. I mean, I can only imagine what's going through your mind because I, I mean, I can't. I'm sure you're like everybody else, every other salesperson that's traveled for a living. It's like, you know, you're out there on a plane somewhere and you go, gosh, if this thing, you know, been away from my family and, and you know, if this plane went down, it, that'd really suck because, you know, I'm just out here selling something. I'd much rather be with my family. Well, I wasn't paying attention. Like most people, I fly so often like you and everybody else. So Canley, you know, I didn't read the instruction, didn't know where the exits were, didn't pay attention. So uh, when when I heard the explosion, I knew something happened. But like like a lot of people would travel a lot, you know, I, I, I knew the plane had two engines. So I thought he was just going back to LaGuardia and getting another plane. And it wasn't until he cleared the George Washington Bridge when he said his famous words, brace for impact, is when I knew that something dire was probably going to happen and probably wasn't going to be a good outcome. So... That was the moment I started realizing that Canley, um, and you know, my first thought, Andy, was like most, like most people, is like, hey, listen, I fly, my number's up. Yeah. I mean, you fly, the more you fly, the more chance you have to be in an incident, and I thought my number was up, so, and especially when you lost all, he lost all power, and he sent straight for the river, you're like, well, you know, this is probably going to be it, so you're trying to get yourself together as pr- quickly as you can and get things lined up with your maker at that point. So the, both engines went, so it was just dead silent? Inside total the plane, si- total silence. It was, and that was another part of which I discuss when I speak about. It. it was so quiet you could hear a pin drop, and which made a lot of difference to the outcome because no one freaked out or melted down. Everybody was, I think, internalizing themselves that this they're probably not coming back and doing what they had to do to uh, get reconciled. So from the time that that you heard the explosion and things went silent to the time that that there was you know impact on the the river. I mean, how how long a period of time was that? From the time he said brace for impact to the time we hit the river was between 60 and 70 seconds. Jeez Louise. So um, it was a six-minute flight, and the highest it got was about 3,300 feet. So when he cleared to George Washington, he was the bridge is about 600 feet up, and he was about three to 400 feet above that. So we were about 900 to 1,000 feet at that point. So another 60, 70 seconds when he uh, crashed into the river. So what happened when the plane touched down? Oh, when it hit, I went up in my seat and back in my seat. It was a, it was a hard hit. He he estimates he hit between about 100, 120 miles an hour. So uh, it was a jarring blow, especially in the back, because he hit back first. So I went back in my seat and up in my seat. But when I came back up, I opened my eyes and I saw light coming through the window. So I knew I had a shot. I was alive, but you know, all of a sudden water started coming in from the bottom of the plane because the way the plane landed stripped the bottom of the plane off. And then somebody actually did listen to the flight crew, went to that closest exit, which may be behind you and tried to open up that door. And all of a sudden you got water coming in from the back end and the bottom of the plane. So that's the other part that a lot of people really don't realize. A lot of people just tell me, I thought you got on a wing and went home. And I tell people, nothing in life is that easy. It's, yeah, uh, no, no. So, so what, what, what sort of transpired? So the, the yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've done this a million times. Told the story, but it's just fascinating for me. Is that yeah. you know collectively a group of people have to take action about something, and, right. and so you're in the water. The plane's not going to stay afloat forever, right? No, it uh, it it started sinking immediately in the back part, especially where I was at. I was in seat 15A, and so about six or seven minutes later, Canley, the nose of the plane was still sticking out, and that's when it started really taking on water. So, so, how long so did it take it, to get everybody off the plane, and, and how did it get organized? Who said what? Well, you know, the word I've used in the media is control chaos, where no one's losing it, but people are moving really fast. Uh, and one of the other things as part of the strategies, when I talk about things in sales, about sales and how it translates to sales, is, you know, there's a lot of different pathways where you don't think you have a pathway. And when we hit the, like I mentioned, the seats, I went back and up and forth in my seat. Well, the top of the seats broke back. 
and all of a sudden you saw people getting extremely resourceful and jumping on top of the seats and walking down the seats. So instead of what you would normally think a one pathway out, which is the aisle, you had multiple pathways out over the seats. So that's how people got out on those wings within two, three minutes so quickly is people started going down the aisle and on top of the seats and getting out those doors. But when I, I didn't think about getting on top of the seat, my thought process was get to the aisle, get up and get out. When I got to the aisle, something happened that only changed that day, but probably changed everything that was probably going to happen from that point on. And my mother started talking to me in my head. My mother passed away in 97, but there was something she would tell me when I was a child that just popped in my head. And it was, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And I had to make a decision. What was the right thing to do? Do you get out or do you take care of other people? And that's why I waited in the back of the plane to make sure we got everybody out before I made my way out. And so there were people that needed your assistance to get off the plane. There were some people. There was an older lady and one lady who, who uh, needed some help. And so, you know, stayed in the back, made sure they got out. They, you know, they, they were helped out in front of the plane. And when everybody was out, I started making my way out. And you got to remember now we're about waist deep in the water. Inside the plane. Inside the plane, 36 this is degree like, water. This is like 45 degree water. 36. 36 degree rest, sorry. No one, but who's, who's asking? <laughs> um, and also the bins had broken open because of the impact. So now you have luggage just flown out. It's dark in the back of the plane, and you're walking in waist-deep water. So, you know, you were always running into something. And at that point, you couldn't tell what you were running into because it was dark. Uh, but that's why the only further I could get up was the 10F exit. So that's when I started to try to get to 10F and go out the uh, the side window. But uh, when I got out, started to get out, I looked out and there was no room on the wing or the boat for me. Um, that's why I was on the plane waist deep in the 36 degree water for about seven minutes, holding on to the lifeboat, making sure they didn't float out to the river. Oh, geez. So were you injured? Uh, I did. I had hypothermia. That's why I was in the hospital. Uh, overnight, but I did have some. Later on, we found out some jet fuel in my left eye, so I have some a uh, little bit injured there. But I have scars on my hips um, from what happened in the hospital and the way they were. It was my basically my underwear had frozen to my hips because of how cold it was, and they couldn't get them off. So they were tugging, but they weren't coming. So they had to cut them off of me. And so uh, right, they had to cut your underwear off of you. Yeah, yeah. There was, my body was so cold; it was like it were ice to my hips. Wow. So, so, um, so what was the hospitalization? So what'd they do so for I, you? So I went to the New Jersey side. Um, I went out the right side of the plane, which was facing Hoboken. So I went to the Jersey side and I went to a place called Palisades and, you know, people, like I said, people, people in New Jersey get a bad rap because they really know how to take care of people. And, uh, they got me in the hospital and the nurses were going after me. Basically they, they, they took the rest of my clothing, which I had not much left because they took it all at the triage center and, in Weehawken, and, mm-hmm. um, and when I got there and they got everything going, basically everything south of my heart was frozen up, my kidneys and everything else, so um, they were going after me, but my blood pressure was so high, that's what they were really the, probably the most uh, worried about, because my blood pressure was 190 over 120, so that's what they were most concerned about, because they thought that with that kind of blood pressure, you could have a heart attack or stroke in the middle of this kind of trauma, so that's... Uh, it took them five hours to warm my body up because they had to do it slowly because my body was basically frozen. And so what's the process they do to, to warm you up when you're that frozen? Great question. They basically, what they do is you have about 10 people beating on your body to get the circulation going, but there's a hot air bag that they basically just lay on top of your, your nude body. Mm-hmm. that puts hot air up and down your body constantly, very slowly, so it doesn't 
you know, come you're, you don't heat up too fast, which would injure the tissue. So while they were beating me, this hot air was going up and down my body and they were monitoring you know, my blood pressure because they were afraid I was going to do that. So there's a lot of things that were going on in the hospital um, that a lot of people don't realize. And so what was going through your mind when this was going on, when you're in the hospital? Well, while all that was going on, we also had the media that was there asking questions. Um, so there was a, that, that action was pretty going on. And yeah, I really was just, I was just lucky to be alive. So, you know, my initial thought was, man, I, I don't even know what happened, but you know, I'm lucky to be alive and I just, I just want to get, get out of here. And so I, you know, that night, all night I was doing interviews, but, uh, you know, I got to meet a lot of people like the former governor of Jersey, the head of Port Authority, New York and New Jersey State Police, FBI, and Homeland Security, and they all had questions because if you remember that night, the crew was locked down over, you know, when they were doing their, their testing, their drug right, testing. Right. So that you can't find them, and everybody else started going home already. So there's another gentleman, Barry, and I were in the hospital, and so they knew where we were at, and we were getting these kind of questions all night, like, you think this was a terrorist attack? Because hmm. if you have a plane going towards a bridge towards Manhattan, yep. someone's got to answer some questions, and we were some of the few people that could ask questions to. So all night long, that's kind of what was going on. So it was, I wouldn't say it was chaos, but it was a lot of action going on um, between the health issues, the the media, the authorities. There's a lot of things going on. So in our lives, we all you know, have these what we call wake-up calls, right? Right. And here you had the biggest wake-up call possible. What, you know, when did that hit you that, you know, perhaps, you know, your life's path was, was going to change? It and really didn't. That's a great question, Andy. It really didn't hit me too much until the following week. When I, that weekend I went to my church and I was asked to speak at men's breakfast the following Sunday. And I thought, that's no big deal. 50 guy, old guys eating pancakes. This is a walk in the park. Unfortunately, they invited the entire city of Charlotte, about five, 600 people showed up. And one of those people showed up was a visitor of the church. And after I got done speaking, she came up to me and grabbed my arm and said, was questioning if there was a God. I don't believe in miracles, but you're physical evidence that there is a God and he does miracles. And he thanked, she thanked me and walked away. And that's when I realized that my life was probably going to change. Um, and that's when it started to change. But what really hit me across the face was a little later on when you know, we did. I did an interview, and my, they interviewed my family, and I realized uh, that you know, I was on such a fast pace, Andy. Like most salespeople, I, I, I modeled my father. Mm -hmm. My father, you know, grew up. When we were growing up, he was traveling, he was working, he was making a lot of money to make sure we had what we needed, and that was sort of my model. And what I realized, I was doing the same thing, but I was, I missed a lot of things with my kids of schools and activities, and they needed they needed more of me than more money. Right. And that's when I really started changing my perspective. You know what? Um, I'm not going to miss anything more for my kids. I'm not going to do it. And I, so my biggest change was changing the priority of how I manage my time. And now I schedule around my family, not around my work. And that's one of the reasons I left Oracle a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't have anything as dramatic as you, but I mean, I had a similar decision point in my life when I decided to start my own consulting business because I'd been traveling 200,000 plus miles a year and in sales and traveling around the world and had started missing birthdays and just decided, you know, I'd rather sacrifice some of the, the money and the upside that might come in the career if I'd stayed in the corporate world in order to, you know, be there for the kids, their yep. games, their recitals, their, their theater shows and so on. Most definitely. And that's, that's what the, that was the part of the, that is the biggest change that I made. And, and you're right. I was just like you, I travel all over the place and, 
you know, I was doing my thing and making good money and doing what I was, thought I was supposed to do. But that's, I needed this probably to wake me up to say, you know, get your priorities in line and your priorities are your family and, and the time with them. So that was the biggest change that happened to me. Right. Let's talk about, you know, you've sort of redefined your life and your career. I said you quit Oracle. What, what's the path you're on now and, and how's that been inspired by what you went through? So, yes. Yeah, so, uh, thank you. So I started speaking, uh, like I mentioned, the week after the plane crash. So I and I, I probably did pretty well because I was asked to speak more and more. Uh, but really what changed for me is I was still working for Oracle because my wife liked health insurance and Canley sort of liked the lifestyle that I had. But I, here right. I was being pulled all over by the media and speaking and this and that. And I was the head of security for Tony Robbins. And so I was traveling with him until about for about another nine months. But then I told Tony, I, you know, he was always on me, Andy, about uh, working for myself. He said, do not work for the man. Work for yourself. That's the only way you can be truly, truly happy and successful. And every time I saw him, he'd ask me, are you still working for your company? And I'm like, yeah. And I couldn't come up with a good excuse because he's a master. He can he can weed right through that pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but about nine months later, we had a discussion. I gave up my position there. And then about, about nine months later, I gave up my position at Oracle uh, when I figured a strategy on how to really do all this. And so I um, you know, I started speaking, uh, and I've spoken now over 700, 800, close to going on 800 times. But I really started opening up when I spoke for the, the National Convention of the American Red Cross because uh, I, I donate my time because they were there that day for me three times and three different circumstances. So, so what I were go, those? How were they there for you? Three times. When I hit the shore in New Jersey, there was a gentleman with a blanket along with the two EMTs that carried me to the triage center. That was number one. Number two, in the middle of the night, like I mentioned, I was getting inundated with media and authorities and all this, but I didn't have any clothes. I mean, they took all my clothes and cut my underwear off, so I had nothing left. And somebody from the Red Cross got some really ugly sweats for me to wear that next day. So I had something to wear, so they didn't know me from Adam. So at 2 o'clock in the night, I get some clothes to wear. And the next day when I got back, the CEO of the Red Cross in Charlotte was with my family, taking care of them, prepping them for what to expect when I got home. So uh, so I had a very close affinity for the American Red Cross. So I was donating my time to help them raise money for their disasters to support other people. And I did their national event in Washington, D.C., which uh, it was about 450 of very affluent women um, across the country. And they heard me, and they've helped me really set my my path and my mission. So a couple of things I want to talk about. One is, is you referred earlier in the conversation to how a customer that you were visiting that day of the accident really – came through for you so what what happened there how'd they come through for you yep well great question so when i got home i got home that friday the the 15th was a thursday i got home friday about midday after i got back um and it was hectic i mean everybody was just trying to get to me but on saturday morning there was this box probably five feet tall maybe three feet wide show up at our house and it was from my customer with gifts from my kids um and things just to say thank you for what you did for to be there that day for us. And so they sent a package to my family so they could, you know, know that they knew that the customer cared about what happened to me. So, you know, I became very close with them. And so as we were going through the final sales stages, you know, I knew they were going forward, even though the people where I was working with doubted it. Um, But I knew it because they told me and their word was good. And so, you know, what I tell salespeople, and I do a lot of sales training, is you know try to make a raving fan before you become become a customer because at that point, 
you know, you're part of the part of their company and they will trust you. And that came to play even afterwards when have you ever been in technology, which I was in technology for many years. Well, no, most of my career. Yeah, no, no implementation is smooth. There's always something that goes burp in the night. And so when when those things were happening at two, three o'clock in the morning, they would call me and I would make things happen for them where other people at Oracle would not even pick up the phone. So, you know, I was part of them and they were part of me. So when things happened, they would come to me and I made it, I made it happen for them. And what happened, Andy, and this, I don't know if this has ever happened to you or any of your listeners, but, you know, when I had my annual review. Sometimes I would get knocked down on my review because I was too customer focused. I would be the customer advocate instead of being the company advocate. So when things, they needed something, I would go to bat more for my customer than more for, for Oracle because I wanted to take care of them. Because I always believed, and I was, that's how I became a top salesperson in every company I was with, because I took care of my customers more. So they would come to me whenever they needed something. So next, you have repeat sales. It wasn't even a sales process. Yeah, it was, well, absolutely. It was a pick up the phone and just figure out the terms process. So, Well, um, well I think, too, a, the, the thing that you, you relate, which I think is a really important lesson for people listening, is that, and I talk about this in, in both my books, is that I, talk, I call this, you have to win the sale before you win the order. Right. Which is you're going to have that customer, they're going to make a decision to buy from you before they long before you get the order. It could be months, it could be weeks, it could be years. In some cases, depending on the complexity and the size of what you're selling. But as a sales rep, you know that moment when that switch flips in the customer's mind. And so, as you said, if you have to do what you can to accelerate building the rapport and the trust in the early part of the sales sales process. And if you do that, then you've got that relationship. I mean, if you had just been another faceless salesperson that customer wasn't sending you a box to your home the day you got back from this accident. No, and you know things like them inviting me to go on a, you know, a, a cruise on their boat right out in the bay, bay in Tampa Bay, where other people were getting jealous. But you know they looked. I was part of the family, and that's. I have four or five customers in my career that I've had that kind of rapport, still have that rapport with, and I still call on them just as friends. So. I think you're exactly right, Andy. The strategy you're talking about is you have to accelerate the sale up front by really, you know, gaining their respect and trust and credibility. And therefore, when the sale comes, all it is is a matter of terms and how you're going to do it. It's uh, and my custom, my client, my my company Oracle would ne- could never figure that out with me. It's how could I get in? How could I get into the C-suite so quickly, build rapport and, and build from scratch somebody who's a com- on a competitor system? to a multi-million dollar sale within six to nine months. And there's a strategy behind it, just like you're talking about, like you're training about. Um, and you have to learn it, and those are the top people who learn that strategy. Yeah, I mean, you understand that it's about the relationships, but also you yep. understand that the, the differences between competitors are so small these days that it they, is yep. what takes place at the personal level that makes the difference between you and everybody else. They can get software anywhere. They exactly. Get that, they get in, it, what is, what's the difference, whether it's this code or this code? It's the personal relationship when all stuff hits the fan is when they're, what they're looking for. Right. It's the Dave Sanderson that makes a difference, well, right? And it could be anybody in the audience. Yep. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I call that the 1% difference, right? You only have to be 1% better than your competition, but that 1% could be based on what you as a person do. That's right. What you bring to the table for them personally. Exactly. exactly right. Excellent. All right. So you and I talked once before, and, and I know that you know, I asked you before what the number one lesson you took away from this experience was. And I, I was struck by that. Now, it's changed how I fly, actually, because you said that the number one lesson was the listen to the flight attendant. Right. Most definitely. 
you, you know, pay, paying attention. And one thing I talk about in my book, Moments Matter, and the first thing I talk about one of the lessons is awareness. Not only what happened that day, but totally what, you know, what, especially in what we're talking about in sales and talking about relationships, be aware of what your customer is really asking you for and what they want you to do. And, you know, being on a plane, one thing I look for right now, and the first thing I do is when they do the announcements, who's not listening? Because I know, I know who, if something does hit the fan, because I've been there, those are the people who are going to have challenges. And they're the people who will first start ranting and raving and melting down. So I've, I've, I want to find out who the customer profile is of the people I'm around and who's aware at that point in time. Yeah, I, I since you and I spoke the first time yep. in preparation for the interview, and this was you know, a couple of months ago, it was like, yeah, every time I, I get, I like to sit in the exit rows. And yep. it's, yeah, I look at these people and I'm like, yeah, they're not. First of all, they may they're not going to be interested in opening the door if, if it came to an emergency. I know I'll be doing it. I'll right. be reaching over them and doing it. Trust. I can trust myself. Yeah. Yeah. I trust myself, and that became evident on my first really cross country trip after the plane crash when I was going on all these TV shows in L.A. You know, I don't think I'm going to share that with you, but when I was on the ex, they put me on the extra row uh, aisle, and when they made the announcements, you know, they came and did the announcement with everybody says yes, of course. And as soon as the announcement were done, the guy on the window pops his right leg off and puts it underneath the front seat. And I'm like beating, hitting the button, going beep, beep. And they know who I am. So they're like, this dude's melting down. He can't handle it. Get him out of here, right? Right, right. But I like pointed to him, and she's like, you can't have to take your leg off, sir. He goes, well, I need the room. And he wasn't paying attention at all because, you know, well, if something did happen, what's he going to go for? His leg or the door? Yeah, well, and that's I'd... when I really realized, right? That yeah. People don't pay attention. Well, and maybe it's a lesson we should all be more demonstrative in the exit rows. Because I, I had a situation a couple of flights ago where, you know, there was an elderly woman that was basically being helped to her seat almost by her traveling companion sitting at the the window on an exit row. And it's like, yeah, that, the airline should be thinking more about that. Yeah, most definitely. So oh. let's just sum up here because we're going to go to the last segment of the show. Where I've got some fun questions that I'd like to ask all my guests. Okay. But talk about your experience here is... is You've uh, you've made a new friend on the movie set for made the movie of this. Uh, they're making a movie about this experience. I am. I, I was very honored. Um, so Clint Eastwood, you know, produ- or directed the movie called Sully about Captain Sullenberger's life and what happened that day. And and um, you know, we all knew it was happening. We couldn't say much about it, but you know, we knew it was happening. But I was very honored in October to be asked to come to be a film a few scenes to be a part of the movie hopefully they'll get in the movie you don't know how it's going to play but out but you're playing final. yourself i'm playing myself so um, did you have to recreate that incident no i can't tell you what happened because okay. that's under non-disclosure all right rate. all right uh but i did say two words so i could give you that uh, i got to say two <laughs> words but i was honored just to even be thought of to be invited to be that day it's uh it's i think uh, one thing i tell people it's one thing about clint eastwood number one he's amazing he's 85 and he's still kicking um but what I think he does really well, Andy, is he tells a hero story really well, like he did an American Sniper. He right. tells the hero story, and I think that's what's going to come out of this. I haven't seen anything about it. Um, they keep everything on the hush-hush, as you probably would realize and want know. But I think it's going to be very fascinated by, uh, by the end product. But I think you got to meet the gentleman that's playing Sully, though, right? I uh, I got to see him. I didn't get to meet Tom. Oh, okay, Hanks. all right. He was over in the other part of the uh, the world. But I get to I did get to have an interaction with Clint Eastwood, which I think was even, as if not more cool. All right. So Tom Hanks is going to play Sully. Clint Eastwood yep. directing it. 
in a minor starring role as himself. <laughs> Dave I don't Sanderson. Sorry, maybe in a passing role, I'll probably say. Yeah. All right. Well, Dave, we're gonna move to the last segment yeah. of the show. I've got some questions I ask all my guests, and and uh, we're gonna start with a hypothetical scenario that I ask everybody, which is assume for a second that you've just been hired as a new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out, and they really need to be turned around. So. What two things would you do in your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Oh, number one, you want to definitely understand what everybody's role is. That's uh, When I was in that position, that's exactly what I would do. I wouldn't make any rash decisions immediately. But the second thing that I would do is, uh, and I, I learned this over the years, especially with Tony Robbins, is getting people focused on the mission and finding out who wants to buy in on the mission. Are they in on the mission? If they're not on the mission, I'll help them find another place to be. Um, because of the, everybody's got to be going in the right direction in sync. And most times I've been a part of sales teams that are not in sync are the ones that are failing because people are not focused in on what the ultimate outcome or the ultimate mission is. And so I teach that in my workshops is how do you understand what's driving this person? What, how do you understand how to communicate with this person? And when those two things happen, I can quickly identify if are they part of the mission or not part of the mission. And then if they are, tremendous. It's, we're going to work towards the outcome. If they're not, then I'll help them find someplace else. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So here's some rapid fire questions. You can give me one or answers. You yep. can elaborate if you wish. So when you're selling, what's your most powerful sales tool? Uh, communication. So name one tool you use for managing your own sales today that you can't live without. Um, I would say uh, sensory acuity. Which is? The ability to understand what modality a person resides in most of the time, whether it's audio, uh, kinesthetic, or visual. Okay. Now, is that a Tony Robbins tool? It's it's a general tool, but he teaches it in depth. And uh, since I was with him for ten years, I got to learn the intricacies of how to understand how what drives people and what, how people communicate. And those are two th- critical things that I use in sales all the time. Okay, so who's your sales role model? You know, that's great. That's a great question. I would I would have said Tom Hopkins. He was my first one. Mm-hmm. That's the first one I met. And I think he's tremendous. But Tony, there's, I don't think there's any better salesperson, sales strategist than Tony Robbins. So what's the one book that every salesperson should read besides your own? That's a, yeah, I was going to say my own, but after that, um, <laughs> that's a given. A of, they should read yours. So there's a lot of great sales books, but the book that I would tell everybody to read, especially right now, is called The Fourth Turning. Um, and the reason why is because it really helps you predict what, and anticipate what's going to happen in the future based on past experiences. It's the one book that Tony insisted that I read and because one of the things he teaches people. And the one skill he values most of anybody who's around him uh, is the ability to anticipate. And so who wrote the book? Is that Tony? Strauss, no, Strauss, Strauss and Howe wrote it. It's called The Fourth Turning. It's, All right. and it's fascinating. All right. You'll be able to find a link to that book on yep. the website on the show notes page. What's on your playlist these days? Uh, what books are on my playlist? No, no. What music's on your playlist? All my, all my play, all my music. Um, I am. Uh, I'm still '70s rock and roll kind of guy, so I still got a lot of uh, Stones and things like that on my playlist. But I am with four kids. I have uh, progressed to uh, some hip hop and some other things like that too. So, uh, but I still have my Frank Sinatra and some rock and roll on there. <laughs> okay, great. So. Yep. Uh, what's the one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople? By salespeople, how do I? How did I get in front of CEOs and CFOs so quickly? And I get what, that all the time. And what was your answer? What is your answer? 
is I did I went outside the norm. I did things such as I give you an example. Um, one of my customers that uh, no one was able to get into at Oracle. I basically said, you know what, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to spend a hundred bucks and send them a big package of chocolates and stuff to the CEO and make sure their assistant, her, his assistant got it. She did. I followed up with her, and she put me right into the CEO in the next week. And that's how that sale became about $2 million sale about uh, about 12 months later. It's doing those things that no one else will do and follow up with the, the assistants. That is the one thing that the, people think they're a gatekeeper. They're, they're the biggest helper you can find is their assistants. I take care of assistants. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, you know, I just uh, just read a book yesterday, and I'm going to be talking to the author. It's uh, called How to, I think it's called How to Meet with, how to meet with anybody, um, a guy named Stu Heineke, that uh, is all about tactics like you just used. You know, how to, what he calls uh, contact campaigns, but focused on a small handful of individuals that can really transform your sales. That's most definitely reaching great. the CEO. Can't wait to hear it. Oh, excellent! Well, great. Well, stay tuned. We'll let you know exactly when it is. So, <laughs> I want to thank you for joining me. It's been so much fun to talk to. You. My guest today has been Dave Sanderson. Dave, tell folks how they can find out more about you. Well, thank you. I really enjoy being with you, Andy. So my website's davesandersonspeaks.com. I, I just upgraded. I'm excited. Any feedback, I really appreciate checking it out. My links to my new book, Moments Matters, on there, too, and also the previous book, Brace for Impact. And I interact a lot on Facebook at uh, Dave Sanderson Speaks, LinkedIn at David Sanderson. And I'm now beginning to Twitter a lot more at Dave Sanderson, too. I'm learning how to do that. So, um that's the best way to get a hold of me. But I, I correspond with everybody directly with me, and I'll be back with you within 24 hours. That's always been my commitment. Excellent. Excellent. Well, remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And subscribing to this podcast is a great way to do that because then you'll make sure you don't miss any of our exciting conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Dave Sanderson, who share their expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business and perhaps have a different, more meaningful purpose in your life as well. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com. 